understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Like Sophia from the Golden Girls, I want you to picture the scene. Johannesburg, February 2000, the front garden of Nelson Mandela's home. He's already welcomed today's guest on Second Captain Saturday as the prodigal son. And now he rests his hand on the man's shoulders as he introduces him to the waiting media. I wanted to welcome my friend Peter Hayne, Mandela says. He was a noted supporter of our freedom struggle, and we thank him for that. Except for people like Peter, who was a leader of the anti-apartheid movement, I might not be standing here a free man today, and our people would not be free. Good morning, welcome to the show. Murph Ken, hello there. Hey, Owen, how are you? I'm sorry I don't have, very sorry I don't have anything as profound to say about you two, but then I'm hardly Nelson Mandela, and neither of you are yeah, Lord Peter, Peter Hayne. Hayne. Let's be perfectly honest about yes, indeed. Peter Hayne, he grew up in Pretoria, the son of anti-apartheid campaigners. He was effectively exiled to England with his family while still a teenager. There he took the fight to the South African government by organising the successful opposition to the South African cricket tour of 1970. This was a movement that led to the isolation of the country on the international sporting stage before going on to a political career that saw him reach the heights of Labour government minister, leader of the House of Commons and Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, responsible for the St Andrews Power Sharing Agreement back in 2006. Not only that, he knows the current Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, better than most, going right back to the anti-apartheid days. So he's well-placed to comment on Corbyn's attempts to stop a no-deal Brexit. Of course, Ken. Brexit isn't the only topic on the agenda of the big G7 summit this week. There's also the small matter of, you know, the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, mm. an issue so big that it's even penetrated the sports world this week. Yeah, well, you know, you could see Emmanuel Macron said uh, it's uh, it's going to be top of the agenda. And Leo Varadkar had, a, I think, a kind of when hope and history rhyme moment whereby um, this Mercosur trade deal, which is very unpopular with a lot of farmers in Ireland, uh, he could, he's he said, well, we're going to have to look at this if this uh, mm. Amazon burning uh, keeps going. Um, uh, I see that that a lot of big footballers are are sort of tweeting about it. Cristiano Ronaldo says, "Pray for Amazonia." Kylian Mbappe says, "Pray for Amazonia." Neymar, biggest star in Brazil, he says, "Buy this watch." <laughs> uh, that's his. Uh, <laughs> the last time I checked Neymar's feed, the last he, the last thing he was hulking was a chunky watch. So. Maybe at some point he'll get around to uh, appealing for the Amazon, but he is friends with the president there. Oh, well, he's so. a Bolsonaro. Was he a supporter? I don't know, Owen, to be honest, if he was a supporter. Mostly, mostly hawking watches rather than throwing his support behind, but he's just staying out of politics. Well, not exactly. I mean, the you know, he, he there's a lot of pictures of him hanging out with the president. He was injured for the Copa America, but right. he went to the final and the president was there and they kind of hung out. Obviously, the two most important guys at the Maracana spent a bit of time together. Uh, and as far as I can see, he hasn't yet uh, <laughs> spoken at a turn about this burning of the Amazon business. Peter Haynes' use of sport as a vehicle to agitate against the apartheid regime sounds like a good basis for him to launch an assault on our second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard, Murph. What's the latest there? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
Senator George Mitchell has led from the early going this season, but if any guest could take down a former House Majority Leader, then maybe it's a former Leader of the House of Commons. 81 is the score to beat for Peter Hayne, and I reckon he's got every chance of taking the lead in our search for Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person. This morning we're about to find out on very, very soon. <laughs> nice sale. Right, it's the usual text number if you'd like to get in touch over the next hour, 51551. You can tweet at Second Captains, as Murph has said. Peter Hayne is coming right up on Second Captain Saturday. That's right after a bit of Thin Lizzy. Dancing in the moonlight It's got me in its spotlight It's alright Dancing in the moonlight On this long hot summer night Possibly the coolest Dubliner ever to live would have been 70 this week. That's Phil Linnett and Thin Lizzy with Dancing in the Moonlight on Second Captain Saturday. Our guest this morning is a huge figure in British politics. He served in successive Labour governments under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, was Leader of the House of Commons, Secretary of State from Northern Ireland. He's now a member of the House of Lords. But long before all that, while still a teenager in fact, he created a movement that led to the isolation of apartheid South Africa in international sport. Lord Peter Hayne, it's brilliant to have you on the show. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. We've had a lot of guests on from different backgrounds. Um, I'm pretty sure you're the first one who completed a car journey from Kenya to South Africa before they turned two years old. (laughs) Can you tell us about that? Yes. I happened to be born in Nairobi in Kenya. My parents, young white South Africans, born in the country, uh, had gone up to Kenya because my dad had his first job there as an architect after graduating at university in Johannesburg. I happened to arrive there. My mother was pregnant when they flew up on an old Dakota of the kind that used to be used in the Second World War. This was 1950 (laughs) when I was born. And then a little while later, I was driven back down the length of Africa virtually, um, hundreds and hundreds of miles, thousands of miles from Kenya to Pretoria, uh, where his my, my grandparents lived, and there were all sorts of mishaps. But uh, they had an incredible journey with punches all the way, springs breaking, gears crunching, brakes uh, collapsing, and running out of money and having to have it wired to them. And, and these, of course, were the days when even telephone contact wasn't that easy, let alone. Uh, let alone uh, the fact that the mobile mobile phones didn't exist. So it was an incredible adventure on their part. Yeah, it really sounds like it. And is it fair to say your childhood continued in that vein? Was it an, an unusual childhood in South Africa? It was a very unusual one in one respect and a very normal one in another. The normality was my parents were both terrific uh, parents to have as a, as a young boy. My dad taught me to play cricket and... Uh, I uh, played with us as kids, my brother and my two younger sisters. And we had a very fun, typically white South African uh, childhood, all of us, uh, of box card racing and bike races and sport and uh, play in the beautiful uh, warm weather. But in another, it was completely abnormal, quite different to any of my school friends, any of my relatives. Uh, cousins and so on, none of them were experiencing the abnormal life which my parents' increasing involvement as young white South Africans, alone amongst their friends and relatives in the anti-apartheid struggle, brought for us because it was uh, we faced increasing intimidation and threats from the security services. 
What forms did their um, protests or their activism take? What, what did they do, essentially? By Irish standards and normal European Western democratic standards, pretty conventional stuff. They supported a candidate in a by-election. As members of the Liberal Party of South Africa, it was the only non-racial, uh, one-person, one-vote, universal franchise party in the early 60s after the African National Congress of Nelson Mandela had been banned along with other political organizations. It was the only remaining legal one when my mother, Adeline Hain, uh, who was the chief activist of the two, and my father, Walter, were most um, active. But then they were drawn as the repression of the apartheid state uh, got more and more vicious. They were drawn more and more into clandestine activity. So, for example, my one of my early um, memories as a kid was waking up as a 10-year-old to find my brother in the, the bedroom I shared with my brother to find our files on my motor. I was a motorsport fan, as I still am, and uh, was keeping files on motorsport. My dad used to get a regular motoring weekly and I used to cut things out from it and these special branch officers were searching through um, these files for incriminating evidence against my parents and obviously (laughs) there wasn't any so that was one of the earliest examples and then things deteriorated for us very rapidly after that as the 1960s drew on. I think we can we can um, we can get to that sort of state uh, repression but what I wondered what was the was there a social price for your parents I mean uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, that you were sort of unique among your friends, that your parents were involved in this. What, what did all their kind of peers have to say about this? Was, was there a sort of um, – did, did they become outcasts uh, among, among their peers because they, they sort of took these views? They became outcasts from their own family. Only my mother's younger sister, Jo, uh, supported her. Uh, her brother, elder brothers and sisters did not. There were five of them, uh, and she worshipped her eldest uh, brother, Hugh, but uh, he turned his back on us as a family, even to the extent that my two younger sisters were unable anymore to play with his own similarly aged uh, daughters, as they had done regularly. And uh, my father's sister-in-law uh, ran a travel agency called Haynes Travels in Pretoria, And her boss forced her to put an advert in the Pretoria News, the main local newspaper, stating that Haynes' travels had nothing to do with the notorious activist Adeline Haynes, but was entirely disconnected. So there was that kind of uh, pressure on them and isolation. But then they had the the brotherhood and sisterhood of their fellow activists, uh, black activists. One said to... Um, then when he came through the front door of, the, of, of, our, of our home in Pretoria, I've never been through the front door of a white person's house before uh, because black servants usually came in through the back door for uh, the kitchen door uh, in order to perform their, um, their duties as servants. Uh, and so we were, uh, we were quite different. Uh, I was brought up to treat um, people the same way, whereas all of my school friends, uh, I remember ticking, ticking off one of my best school friends, a white school friend, for calling the elderly gardener a grandfather in working in their home's gar- their home garden, um, elderly black gentleman, calling him a boy as a, 
whites contemptuously did of black men, whatever their age. So in that sense, it was completely abnormal. And they did play a price, not least in the end, because my father was prevented from working. But then a number of other things uh, happened to us before then. I suppose the most notable when I was 11 year old was was I was 11 years old was when I was woken up in the middle of the night again to be told that my parents would be put in jail. They were held for two weeks uh, for supporting Nelson Mandela's defiance campaign. This was in 1961 and then released for lack of evidence. The main reason there wasn't any evidence was because my parents, when arrested in a black township, had been taking a draft leaflet on the campaign to show to black comrades of theirs involved in the struggle. And uh, when they were arrested, my mother swallowed the leaflet, just chewed it up, uh, and, uh, and actually, sorry, spat it out. She didn't swallow it. She chewed it up and spat it out. So they were un she, they, she ran away and did this. And then when she was apprehended, of course, there was no evidence left. Uh, and they were eventually released. But my dad lost his job. He was sacked as a result of that and had to find another job as, a, as an architect. And I remember doing the shopping then. We didn't have any money, so all the shops had to uh, had to provide for us the greengrocers and so on, on tick, as it was, as it were, um, to wait my parents' uh, return home and my dad to get a job, hopefully. The family eventually decided to move to get out of South Africa and move to England, where you... I think quite quickly became interested in fighting apartheid yourself as a very young man, as, as a boy, as a teenager, which took the form of non-violent direct action. Can I ask you first, why non-violent? Well, first of all, we had to leave the country. You're right, we were forced into exile to live in Britain because they stopped my father working. After he was banned in 1964, a year after my mother, uh, he found it increasingly difficult to get work in Pretoria. The terms of his banning order confined him to the Pretoria municipality. He was unable to leave, therefore, to try and find work elsewhere in South Africa. So when they eventually stopped him working anywhere, uh, he had no alternative but to get a job in London, which, which he did, and we left in 1966. And it was a few years later in 1968-69 that I started getting involved in the anti-apartheid movement, following my parents in there. And as a sports-mad um, youngster, teenager, and I still am a sports mm. uh, fanatic. Um, I, had, I had decided really that sports should be targeted uh, because uniquely in international sports, South Africa's own sporting structure reflected its vicious, discriminatory, racist politics. You couldn't play for your country if you were a non-white South African of whatever color, black, uh, colored, or Indian. So, for example, the current Springbok captain, Asia Kolisi, is a black man, uh, a very good forward. He would, could never have captained his country. He couldn't have even been a Springbok uh, in the days of the late 60s and 1970s when um, I started becoming active uh, myself in in. And I chose nonviolent direct action to respond specifically to your question mm -hmm. because I thought it was no good anymore just holding out placards outside um, Lord's Cricket Ground or Twickenham Rugby Stadium 
or Murrayfield in, in Edinburgh or Cardiff uh, Rugby Stadium, wherever it might be, or Dublin, <laughs> that's down road for that matter, the old rugby stadium where internationals were held. Uh, it was no good just demonstrating symbolically. We had to physically stop the matches. But that was the way I felt we could strike a real blow. So that form of nonviolent direct action was something that, that I came up with. It was a product of becoming radicalized as a young, uh, as a young man, a teenager, 18, 19 years old in that era, a particular unique era of the Paris student revolt in 1968, the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland, the, um, student sit-ins, the anti-apartheid uh, marches, uh, the anti-Vietnam protests, uh, and there was a sort of whole um, uh, fervent uh, debate and political discussion that I used to go to conferences uh, about and get involved in, and that's where I formed my ideas, one of which was the use of nonviolent direct action to stop uh, racist uh, South African sports tours, which is what we duly did. Yes, yeah, specifically, you managed to stop stop the seventy tour. That was the name of the committee that you formed. This was a cricket tour that was due to happen in nineteen seventy, which never happened. Extraordinary stuff because at the time they were traveling, no problem. Nobody seemed to have an issue with apartheid South African and white only South African teams traveling the world and essentially giving legitimacy to that regime. And yet, you managed to stop that. How did you do that? What was the? How did you carry out your plan to um, to disrupt sporting events and ultimately to get that cricket tour cancelled? Well, it started in small ways. A group of fellow activists and myself uh, interrupted the first match by a, uh, a Davis Cup South. It was a Davis Cup tennis match uh, in Bristol in July 1969, and we travelled down from London and joined a fellow activist in Bristol uh, and ran onto the tennis court and in front of live television coverage, and it created a huge impact. And it sort of snowballed from there. There was then, in the summer of 1969, a private tour by a cricket side for a white South African cricket side, the Wilf Isaacs Eleven, sponsored by a wealthy businessman called Wilf Isaacs. And we interrupted uh, matches there. Sometimes I did that with members of my family. Peter, yeah. when you say interrupted matches, what do you mean? What what kind of stuff were you doing? We were we were running on the pitch and sitting down on the on the cricket pitch or the tennis court. Uh, and they had to call the police and get us uh, carted off. I mean, we didn't react violently. We just went limp. Uh, and we formed the Stop the 70 Tour campaign in September 1969. I didn't expect to be leading it, though it was, and I found myself the national chair of this movement, having expected to, you know, be the one dishing out the leaflets uh, in, in the grassroots and suddenly becoming a national figure as the Springbok Tour arrived in October of 1969 for the first of 25 matches, one in, in Dublin, another in Northern Ireland was actually cancelled because of security threats. This would have been in, um, in, in late 1969 with obviously the troubles beginning there. And, uh, and so it escalated to become a mass movement involving up to 100,000 people that effectively disrupted, massively disrupted the Springbok Tour and led to a situation in by the end of the tour in January 1970 where we had a great springboard from which to to begin to campaign to stop the 1970 cricket tour. This news even managed to get as far as Robben Island. Nelson Mandela was made aware of this by hook or by crook. 
Yes, he was in a news blackout then, he and his comrades on Robben Island. But the White Warders, who were Springbok fanatics, were absolutely furious and frustrated at the demonstrations and uh, vented their fury on Mandela and his comrades, not realizing they were conveying something precious because uh, they were telling those on Robben Island that here was a massive international movement. Uh, something that boosted their morale. He told me when I first met him in 1991, when he was released, he told me it had been an enormous morale boost to to them in those bleak times on, on Robben Island. I want to talk about the personal impact on you of being in charge of this, leading this movement at such a young age. But in terms of the actual uh, political uh, and essentially worldwide impact this had, you caused a disruption to the rugby tour, so much so that by the time the cricketers were supposed to tour the following year in 1970, you succeeded. You stopped the 70 tour as you set out to do. How big a blow did this strike to the apartheid South African government? Well, it had become, first of all, a, a Commonwealth issue because the Commonwealth Games were due to be staged in Edinburgh, coinciding with the tour, the cricket tour that summer of 1970. And we persuaded successive African... Uh, Asian and Caribbean countries to withdraw. So it was going to be a white Commonwealth Games and a white cricket tour, which would have made a statement about Britain, uh, which was one of the reasons, as well as a threat to law and order and uh, the, the, the fact that we'd have mobilized hundreds of thousands of uh, demonstrators to wreck the cricket tour. It became an international issue. And when the tour was cancelled, it created a massive impact within South Africa, as I'd always thought it would do. Sport was something that they craved because they were shunned across the world, but they were fated, were the Springboks at um, Twickenham uh, and the rugby stadium of the world in New Zealand, in Australia. And yet there was only ever one part of South Africa taking place. So their participation, their legitimacy, their... Um, the respect they were shown exclusively in sport and not in any other way because apartheid was shunned was very important to white South Africans. You were, as I said, 19 years of age when this whole thing started. Uh, the impact that on you personally, Peter, I mean, you were denounced as public enemy number one in South Africa, which was no bad thing at, at that time, obviously. Uh, but you not necessarily too popular in the UK. There was a newspaper editorial saying it would be a mercy for humanity if this unpleasant little creep were to be dropped into a sewerage tank up to his ankles head first. Uh, and I might sound impolite to bring that up, but you did include it in your memoir, so I think I'm safe enough to do it. But how did people actually, how did people justify their opposition to you and what you were doing? Like Your cause if you break it down, it's essentially protesting a state that has racism enshrined in its constitution at that time. Seems pretty just to be uh, protesting that. And yet there was such a groundswell of opposition towards you. How do people justify it? Well, first of all, their sport was being interfered with. And that had never happened before. Now, I'm a sports fan, and I can understand that. But I was receiving end of, of real hate mail and threats and vicious sort of attacks by... Uh, rugby supporters who hated what we were doing. There was a kind of, there was no meeting of minds. They didn't understand why we were stopping their rugby, stopping their cricket. And those on the right of, of politics, of, of a more conservative um, ilk, were deeply hostile to me. 
And then there was also the hostility that came from people saying that I was law-breaking because we were, you know, stopping lawful activities and so on. It, was it, it wasn't just time. threats. Yeah, it wasn't just threats, Peter. I mean, there, was a, there was a bomb sent to your family home. Is that right? Yes. In June 1972, I, was, I received a letter bomb of the kind that assassinated anti-apartheid leaders right around the world sent by the Bureau of State Security called BOSS very appropriately the South African Secret Services uh, and they were killing similar letter bombs were killing people right around the world my unfortunately it was opened on the breakfast table by my younger sister uh, amidst a pile of campaign posts fortunately there was a technical fault in it and the the bomb squad then targeting IRA um, attacks in London and elsewhere uh, descended on our house and made it safe and took it away and said it would have blown not just me but all my family I stayed with my parents at the time still um, and the whole household up so it was a pretty powerful uh, explosive device so I was very fortunate um, in escaping that in a way that tragically others didn't. How do you look back at that time in your life now that movement and the success of it? I'm very proud of it uh, it was controversial uh, I was vilified in many quarters, but um, had strong support in others. I'm very proud of it. I wouldn't have changed a thing. Yes, I took a lot of uh, stick. I was put on a conspiracy trial for four weeks in the Old Bailey and uh, only narrowly uh, managed to get avoid going to prison. Right. Then in 1975, I was subject to the most bizarre uh, bank theft accusation set up by a South African agent and landed up in the Old Bailey again uh, for two weeks this time on a classic case of mistaken identity, but with that surreal apprentice twist. So, yeah, I was targeted, but, you know, I survived. Uh, a lot of others were killed. A lot of others were tortured. A lot of others, um, like Mandela and his comrades, spent all of their lives in prison. So by those standards, I I, I escaped relatively unscathed. Well, one of your later allies in the anti-apartheid movement was a certain Jeremy Corbyn, and I want to talk to you about the Labour leader. We'll do that after a quick break. You are listening to Peter Hayne on Second Captain Saturday. RTE Radio 1 Second Captain, First Captain, whatever. If you want to get in touch on Second Captain Saturday, just tweet at Second Captains. It's an honour to have Peter Hayne on the show this morning. We've been talking to you, Peter, about your successful movement to isolate apartheid South Africa on the international sporting scene. You, at a much later stage of your life and political career, were part of the government that voted for the Iraq War. Is that your big, the biggest regret of your career? Yes. That was the thing that I regret most. I was a member of the cabinet, um, back Tony Blair's recommendation because I genuinely and honestly believe whether people accept this or not is up to them. The intelligence which we were shown that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, of course he'd used weapons of mass destruction, particularly chemical weapons, against the Iranians in that terrible war, killing nearly a million of them, and against the Kurds in the north of Iraq. So he had form. Uh, but that, that evidence uh, was completely wrong. Uh, in some respects fabricated, and we, it, that was shown subsequently. So we went to war on a lie, uh, and that is something for which Tony Blair paid a heavy price in political reputation, uh, and understandably so, because in other, way, in other respects, especially in terms of the Good Friday peace process, he was a brilliant prime minister. Uh, but uh, it, it is no, there's no question it's, it's the, the one 
the the mean decision I would love to have uh, had reversed. I think you got a bit of advice to that effect before you made the decision. Is it right that Mandela had a word with you and said this is not a good idea? Yes, he phoned me up and said, uh, we spoke regularly, we'd become uh, good friends over the years. Uh, and I'd been Minister for Africa, for example, and worked together with him on various projects after he stepped down as President of South Africa. Um, and he phoned me up and was really angry, he said he wanted me to tell Tony Blair, whom he hadn't been able to get hold of, unusually because they spoke quite regularly, to tell him that Iraq going to, to war in Iraq was a big mistake. This was before the invasion. And I conveyed that to Tony and told him clearly about it. Um, but he was, he was very cross. He said, you know, you're all doing such fantastic work around the world, including in Africa, and this is going to destroy uh, Labour as a, as a powerful progressive force. And in many respects, I'm afraid he was right, as, as, was, as were my parents who sent me a memo. My dad uh, wrote it, um, which uh, a private memo, which if you read it now, is uncannily accurate mm. in terms of it saying uh, you know, what was wrong about the decision. Uh, so, of course, uh, there's no question about it. I hold my hands up absolutely um, in saying that it was, uh, I wish I'd never made that decision uh, and I just have to be straightforward about it. What's your opinion um, about the, the question of, you know, when, when a decision like that is made, and obviously Tony Blair is the person who uh, I guess is most responsible on the UK side, that when you make a mistake that big, you sort of lose your right to tell, to, to sort of lecture people after that. You know, for, for instance, you see Tony Blair involved a lot in, uh, he clearly, he opposes uh, Brexit, but there's, there's almost an impression that every time he, he appears making his points, regardless of of whether of how reasonable he's being, or you know the kind of quality of his uh, of his political argument, that it's kind of like you've you know you, you need to get off the stage now. You, you had your time. You made a massive well, I, mistake. I don't think that's right. I mean, uh, he has been absolutely straightforward about it. Um, he still thinks it is the right thing to do. I don't agree with that. Um, but you know, I don't think you can. I don't think you can take away from him his many other uh, qualities and his many other achievements. I mean, I was never a Blairite. I was always on the left of the Labour Party, and, and Tony certainly wasn't that. Uh, but And I'm not a kind of you know uh, hero worship or anything like that. But I do think he's had a f formidable achievements to his record as a prime minister, particularly the Irish peace process, which I was able to play a role in, but also, you know, in many respects, one of the most successful Labour governments ever, uh, doubling spending on the health service, doubling spending on schools, rescuing shattered public services from 18 years of Tory cuts and neglect, uh, creating a strong economy before the banking crisis. Um, one of the strongest periods of growth and prosperity and low unemployment, uh, probably the strongest period that Britain's ever seen. So I think he had tr tremendous sort of achievements to his record. And I don't think that excludes him from the, the right to speak, as he has done so persuasively about the disaster of Brexit or the impact on the Irish border. I think that um, he has a right to, to, to speak out. He speaks with a lot of conviction, a lot of... Pers is very compelling, in my view, on the Brexit agenda in saying what a disaster it is. Whether people listen to him or not, 
uh, because of the Iraq question is a matter for them. But I certainly think he has a right to be heard. What about the question of, of um, pasokification, so-called pasokification? After the Greek, I guess, the Labour equivalent party, left of centre or social democratic parties, their votes in many countries have collapsed over the last few years as voters feel that what happened to New Labour under Tony Blair, where they tacked more towards the centre and so on, that the traditional voting base of these parties thought, well, why should I vote for parties that are indistinguishable now from the centre-right parties. They don't represent me anymore. They've, they've sort of forgotten me. And you've, you've seen these... I think, uh, I think you're right in many respects. I, I actually argued with it with Tony, with other leading figures in the Labour government like Peter Mandelson, Gordon Brown and others. I said that we were neglecting our base. And I sometimes said this publicly and got into trouble for, for speaking my mind. Hmm. Um, uh, and turning our back on our traditional base. But I think... This is a product of the whole neoliberal era, which followed Thatcher in in Britain and Reagan, President Reagan in in the U.S., um, where the post-war consensus around Keynesian public-led investment, where the private sector was weak, to spur growth, building millions of homes, creating the National Health Service after debt was, national debt was four times the size after the Second World War defeating Hitler than it was after the banking crisis, which was used as an excuse for the conservative uh, austerity, which we're uh, still suffering from in, in Britain. Um, I think that that neoliberalism, which Tony Blair's government tacked to, and I think we should have been more radical, as did centre-left parties across Europe, has been responsible for the loss of support amongst working class and progressive opinion. Uh, and and I think you, you can explain a lot of what's been happening in politics, whether it's the, the rise of Syriza to replace um, PASOK, uh, which has been virtually extinguished in Greece, uh, or the rise of populist movements across Europe, in Austria, in um, France and elsewhere, uh, on the right as well as um, on the left is a failure of the parliamentary, traditional post-war parliamentary parties of which Labour was one to provide a clear alternative to austerity and to neoliberalism. Uh, and, and so I, I think, I don't think, I don't think, I, although I'm very proud of what we achieved as, as a Labour government and that the, the, um, the 12 years I spent as a government minister, very proud of things that I did, particularly on Northern Ireland. Uh, I also think we were not radical enough and opened the door to this discontent which spawned Brexit has given rise to Trump because the Democrats have not provided an alternative to that either uh, and to a lot of the populism uh, around the world from Bolsonaro in um, in Brazil to Erdogan in Turkey and for that matter Putin in Russia. I mean we have a very serious crisis of, of global leadership at the moment. Do you then see Corbyn um, as, a, as a kind of a necessary corrective in the in the Labour Party, you know this this figure who, as, as you said, back in the eighties, not many people would have picked out as a future Labour leader. But in this different context, suddenly um, has you know has become very popular, certainly with Labour Party members. Um, that it's necessary to sort of drag the party back in that direction. Well, Jeremy Corbyn was elected in twenty fifteen because, in a way, the new Labour era had exhausted itself. And the alternative candidates who'd all stood 
in uh, who had all been government ministers, did not provide a visionary alternative to austerity or to uh, to, to generate enthusiasm amongst either working class communities like that I like I represented in the South Wales seat of Neath, a former coal mining area for uh, 24 years, or um, in progressive uh, middle class circles. Uh, and that paved the way for Corbynism. That's why Jeremy won. He he didn't expect to become leader when he stood in 2015. Uh, but the failure of the other candidates, who were the, the strongest candidates, um, to offer a radical alternative that didn't have to be extreme, just different to austerity and neoliberalism, paved the way for, for his uh, leadership. Corbyn is making his move now in terms of a possible vote of no confidence uh, in Boris Johnson. How do you view that situation? I mean, Joe Swinson, the Liberal Dem- Democrat leader, has refused to support Corbyn to avoid no deal. Is there a situation here where too many people, or, or a lot of people within British politics, will take a no deal, even if that's not what they support, over Jeremy Corbyn? And how how dangerous is that potentially? Well, Conservatives will tell you that, and others will as well in the, the centre-right of politics. Uh, but for me, the big threat is not Jeremy Corbyn. The big threat is Brexit. I think Brexit is a monumental act of national self-harm. It is going to damage Britain in the longer term economically, but not just that. It's going to damage us, isolate us from our brothers and sisters, our neighbours in the European continent. It's already uh, causing huge uh, damage to the Irish peace process. I'm deeply, deeply concerned and have been and, and have spoken repeatedly about this in Brexit debates in the House of Lords. I, I focused on the Irish border uh, right from the beginning and have done so repeatedly, pointing out the folly of what is now the Boris Johnson strategy. Uh, no deal is a disastrous for the border, is disastrous for the border because it'll have to close in various ways. And... Um, uh, we're already see. I, I, I think also that Stormont is in suspension, not entirely because of Brexit, but in the shadow of Brexit. And uh, so, I think the priority now, and whatever route it is, is to defeat Brexit. Now, whether that's getting rid of Boris Johnson's government, which I'd love to see, uh, through a vote of no confidence, and installing an alternative government which I hope will be Labour, but uh, I don't know what form that might take, an emergency government of some kind, various permutations have been spoken about, to simply stop this folly and careering disaster towards no deal. Um, That is the priority for me. And I I want to see a referendum, because this process was started by a referendum, and people voted against something. They voted for leaving the European Union, but they never voted in favour of where to go. And we're in a situation now where we've no idea where we're going to end up, but we're going to go there anyway. That's what effectively Boris Johnson is saying. And I think Jeremy Corbyn is right to try and resist that. I think there should be another referendum to give people a chance to say, well, we may have voted against the European Union for various reasons. A lot of people, I think, fed up with the political elite in general and not just uh, Europe happened to be the convenient scapegoat. Um, but actually, is this really what we voted for? Did we really vote for a hard border in, in Northern Ireland, in, in Ireland, in the island of Ireland? Did we really vote for the consequences which are now apparent to everybody? 
Uh, and there's basically a small group of extremists who are driving this whole uh, project. And, and whether it's a motion of no confidence, uh, but I think in the end it has to be through a, or a general election, it has to be through a referendum, because I don't think you can undo the damage without people given a chance to say, is this what you really want? I, know, it, I, I do feel, though, Peter, that uh, the genie's kind of out of the bottle on this one. Imagine they did a referendum... You know, imagine there was a second referendum and, and there was like a narrow win for Remain. <laughs> it's not going to solve the problem. You know, it, all you'd have is... It solves the problem in the sense that if there were a Remain victory by whatever margin, remember there was a Leave victory by only a tiny margin, yet Leavers, uh, you know, the Leaver leaders behave as if they won a landslide majority. Oh, oh absolutely. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you, you know, more. So, I, think it's... so I, I, I agree. This, this, this debate will go on, this argument will go on. Of course it will. It's been going on really ever since we joined the European Union along with Ireland in 1973 in one way or another. Um, but the important thing is to protect the country and the national interest and to safeguard the interests of the majority of citizens, not to be driven by an extreme right-wing um, elite, because that's what they are. Hmm. Uh, when you look at Boris Johnson, um, what do you think is the what is it about him that a lot of people seem to respond to? I mean, he does seem to be, I mean, from, from the point of view, maybe of a lot of people over here, mystifyingly popular. I mean, I think his overall, his net approval rating is negative, like all of the politicians in the UK, but um, he is one of the more popular ones. What is it a, a, about him, despite a, you know, it's not as though his his record is full of um, very impressive achievements, and there's, you know, there's lots of evidence of... Uh, dishonesty and, and so on and so forth. But there's something about him that people respond to. What is it? Well, it's a bit similar to Trump. I think he's Britain's Trump. It's a kind of anti-politics politician. He presents himself as that. In fact, he's a member of the political elite up to his eyebrows. He's an old Etonian, a member of the Bullingdon Club, uh, and all of that. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's nobody, in a the sense, there isn't anybody else more quintessentially part of the establishment elite, and yet he presents himself as an anti-establishment figure, and that's his, his political persona. And I think some people on the right of politics, like they do for Donald Trump, find that attractive, uh, because the political class has never been more unpopular right across the spectrum, left and right. Uh, and so I think that's what gives him his particular sort of... Uh, appeal to what is a minority of the population, but given Britain's voting system, uh, quite possibly enough to, you know, um, sustain him in power. Peter, you've been very good with your time this morning. We do have one final item to tick off the list. We have to rank your sporting achievements. And for to that end, we've got a couple of questions first. You mentioned cricket earlier on and your dad teaching cricket. Was that your number one sport? Cricket and soccer. Yeah. Unusually, as a white South African youngster, I was more keen on football than I was on rugby but cricket and and uh, and football along with motor racing would be my, my main sports. I've seen you uh, describe yourself as a keen but second rate left handed batsman and spin bowler noted for catches close up to the batsman. Is that about right? Yes, I used to play at Pretoria Boys High as a short leg, literally a metre or two from the batsman, scooping up catches with one hand, literally you know, from from the ground level so that was you wouldn't probably be allowed to field in those positions without a helmet anymore but i did i suppose that's uh 
my my one achievement. I mean, I wasn't that good as a cricketer, to be perfectly frank with you, but I enjoyed it anyway. Well, that sounds like you're sporting hard. Was, is that the same school that you went back to as Minister for Africa in, in the British government to many years later at a much happier time for the country? Yes, it was. Uh, and Nelson Mandela greeted me as a returning British Minister for Africa, the only one ever born in Africa. And I went to speak at my school assembly, which when I'd been at, of course, was all white. And then it, you know, before me in the year 2000, a third of, were black. It was quite emotional, actually. And in a sense, symbolized what we'd been struggling for in those Stop the Tour campaigns. Of course, now the school is majority black. But um, as, as apartheid is gradually rolled back, but it'll take many generations to do. Well, Peter, you've stated your case very strongly today. The time has now come to rank this sporting life of Peter Hay. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have, then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Peter, it's time for me now to rank your all-time sporting highlight. Pick out the sports person that your achievements most remind me of and then give you a score out of 100 to see if you can become our greatest non-sports person sports person for 2019. It's never easy. It's never fun, except for me, of course. I have a great time doing this. So your all-time sporting highlight uh, comes from the Pretoria Boys High School, feeling a short leg without a helmet, as you say. That's all. That's one thing. But really, returning to that same school, as you say, for Minister for Africa, to see black and white kids playing sport together, so different to your own school days, that's a pretty powerful sporting highlight. Your prodigious political achievements while still in your teens, that really interests me. And so the sports person you most remind me of is football's boy wonder Pele, who won the World Cup at the age of 17, which is pretty good. Not striking a blow against apartheid at 19, good, but pretty good nevertheless. So for all that, it gives me great pleasure to give you 84 points and first place in this year's series with just one show to go. (laughs) Peter Hayne, this has been your sporting life. Peter, what an honour for you, I'm sure. A career highlight. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, thank you so much. Much better than any political award I've ever got. Round of applause, Peter Hayne. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Peter. Stone Cold Classic from 1992. That's Motorcycle Emptiness by the Manic Street Creatures. And we have a new name on top of the leaderboard for the greatest non-sports person, sports person competition. A massive congratulations there to Peter Hayne. What swung it for you, Murph? Was it his ability to make catches close to the batsman? Or the fact that he set in motion a chain of events that culminated in apartheid South Africa being largely banished from international sport, thereby crushing the prestige of one of the most evil regimes in human history? It was the first, it was the former, wasn't can it? I, can I dodge the question and say it was a little from column A and a little from column B. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I I think really on balance, you'd probably have to say taking down apartheid. But, you know, at the same time, short leg is an extremely difficult position to feel that in cricket. So Nobody you know. knows what you're talking about, Murph. If you've come away from that chat, want to hear a bit more from Peter Hayne. He's written and edited more than 20 books, so there's plenty to get stuck into, including most recently a biography of Nelson Mandela. His friend, Nelson Mandela, called Mandela his essential life. The very first match that Peter targeted with his direct action back in the day took place at Twickenham, a stadium which today plays host to a match unlikely to spark any great political movement, but might just put pay to the chances of some of the Irish rugby team even boarding the plane to Japan for the World Cup. Have you guys heard the nickname England coach Eddie Jones has given his back row for this match? No. No. The Kamikaze Kids.
the kamikaze kids. For the f- uh, yeah, for the mm. first time, he's picking Tom Curry, age 21, and Sam Underhill, age 23, asked to elaborate on why they have earned the nickname the kamikaze kids, because they hit everything that moves. <laughs> and apparently they injure themselves in the process. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I mean, I suppose kamikaze attacks didn't always end that well. In fact, you could say they ended rather poorly for those involved. Most of the time. Well, for so all concerned, yeah. Yeah, so I don't really... Yeah, as a nickname, I'm not entirely sure about it. I'm more worried about our boys, Murph. I am concerned, though. I'm a tiny bit concerned. I don't yeah. know why I'm so worried already about our World Cup hopes. No, just a nice victory today. Well, uh, victory, no injuries. That will set us right for the next few weeks and a couple of months. That's pretty much it for this morning from us on the day that Peter Hayne has stormed to the top of the leaderboard. And there's only one person who can catch him now. Colm Tobin is the guest for our final show of the current series next Saturday morning. In the meantime, why don't you go out and support some independent broadcasting direct from our own studios. We've got daily shows available for you on secondcaptains.com. And of course, Marion Fanukin is coming right up here on Radio 1. Second Captain Saturday is produced by Mark Horgan and Simon Hick with Killian Down researching. Thanks so much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the weekend.